Let us pray. Lord, we come before you and we pray that you would work through my words, that you would reveal your truth, that you would convict hearts and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Corey Ten Boom said, There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. She saved the lives of an estimated 800 Jews during the Nazi genocide during World War II. She and her family were Dutch Baptists, and they had a strong faith, and they had a reputation for helping people. Uh, She lived in a house that was made up of two other houses that had sort of been connected together by a builder. And as a result, there was a lot of space between certain walls. As the Germans overtook the Netherlands, she listened to the radio and listened to some some of Hitler's speeches, and and she said, it is the voice of a demon. She was not impressed with him at all. And Corey was convinced that she needed to help Jews during this difficult time, and so she gathered together a group of 80 people that she knew from Bible studies and whatnot, and she formed a clandestine resistance to the German occupation. She had a secret room that she had built into her house in one of these spaces in between the walls, and there was an entryway in her bedroom, and it could hold six people at a time. Together with this organization and others, refugees were hidden and they were transported to places far away where they could live in relative safety. She eventually was betrayed. And the soldiers came into her house and as one of them beat her, the other ones went around and looked for where all of the Jews were hidden. And they could find none anywhere. They looked and looked and were able to and were unable to find anyone if they had found a Jew in there then obviously she would have been killed right then and there but God saved her and he had a habit of doing that throughout her life there were many many other times when she was saved in a most remarkable way from being killed she was saved by a God who is in control of everything When we look at the story of Joseph, we're reminded that God is a God who is deeper than the deepest pit. He is in control over all events, and he supervises everything within the affairs of men. So think back to where we left off last week. When we left off last week, Joseph was thrown into prison, and there's actually a sense in which we might consider him being at least a little bit lucky. Attempted rape was a capital offense in Egypt. And so there's a way in which Potiphar was letting him off easy. But at the same time, we have to say that this is absolutely a violation of justice. Potiphar's wife had lied about Joseph. The Hebrew servant who brought among us came in to laugh at me. That's what the kids called it back then. But as soon as I lifted my voice and cried, and le- he left his garment beside me and fled out of my house. She lied about him. 
Do you realize that? How would that have felt? You see, it's easy for us to read this story and fail to consider it from Joseph's point of view. How would it make you feel if somebody had accused you of sexual misconduct? How would it make you feel if you were thrown in prison for something you had not done? How would it make you feel if a lie had led to your downfall? Joseph hadn't had very much. He was a slave, but at least he had a little bit of honor and respect within Potiphar's household, and now even that was gone. How would you feel if somebody said a lie and it took away everything that you had? It took away your job? It took away your friends? What if it even took away your family? Joseph's situation was horrible. And indeed, it is worse when you, when you really understand what is going on with the timeline of this story. If you look at some other verses in Genesis, like 37.2, 41.1, then you start to realize that he's actually been in prison for a while. You'd know how long it was between the time that he was thrown in prison and when the cupbearer and the baker show up. Eleven years. Imagine being in an Egyptian prison for 11 years. It's long enough that it would cause most of us to despair, I would say. It would certainly be a long time, long enough to develop quite a grudge against the liar that put you there, wouldn't it? And then there's another period of time. So how long do you think it was after he interprets the cupbearer's dream that he's still in prison? Two Two years. After he interpreted that dream, he said, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph is saying I'm innocent. Look, The the whole reason I'm in Egypt is because I was unjustly sold as a slave. And the reason that I'm here in prison is also unjust. is because somebody lied about me. Please go to Pharaoh and tell him to let me out. And what does the cupbearer do? The chief cupbearer didn't remember Joseph, but he forgot him. That's probably not a literal forgetting, but rather the cupbearer just didn't care enough to get Joseph out. So when Joseph is innocent and he is in need, he's really betrayed by this one whom he helped. Joseph was there for two whole years. If he hadn't despaired before, that would seem like it would cause him to despair, wouldn't it? And, you know, his one chance at getting out had failed. Perhaps that first week he was thinking, well, maybe the cupbearer is going to say something to Pharaoh today, and it didn't happen in another week, in another week, until it's two whole years. Don't you think that that would make you despair? Don't you think that that would make you want to plot revenge against the liar? But when we look at what the Bible says about Joseph, it never mentions anything about him despairing or plotting revenge. And it does say a lot of things that would make us think that that wasn't even consistent with his character. Joseph is the kind of a guy who is kind and forgiving towards those who have wronged him. He never seems to despair. Instead, he seems to have this assurance that God is somehow going to take care of him and everything is going to be okay. Joseph is not perfect, 
But at the same time, he's the first person in this family that I look at and I think, you know, he's a pretty good guy. He's remarkable in comparison to the rest of them. What do we do with this? Here's here's one thing that I want you to think about this morning. Be very, very careful how you handle accusations that are made against people. Some people figure that the old adage, where there's smoke, there's fire, can be used to decide whether or not someone is guilty. This sort of reasoning is found in Zadie Smith's novel, White Teeth. There's a guy whose name is Samad, and he believes that his grandfather, Pande, was a great soldier and a great man. But his friend, Archie, believes the rumors that his grandfather was a traitor. My great-grandfather was a mutineer, and I'm proud to say this. I I concede matters didn't go quite according to plan, but traitor? Coward? The dictionary you show me is old. These definitions are now out of currency. Ponde is no traitor and no coward. Ah, now you see, we've been through this, and my thought is this. There's no smoke without fire, Archie would say, looking impressed by the wisdom of his own conclusions. Do you know what I mean? This was one of Archie's preferred analytical tools when confronted with new stories, historical events, and the tricky day-to-day process of separating fact from fiction. There is no smoke without fire. So the way that Archie handles these new informations when he is forced to think about whether or not something is just, he just says, where there's smoke, there's fire. Obviously, if there's a bunch of accusations, then the person is guilty. Archie, like honestly a lot of people today, would look at the rumors concerning Joseph, and they would just assume that all of the accusations that were made against him were true. Is that how you should judge? You know how biblical judges were supposed to judge? They were supposed to examine carefully all of the facts, and they were certainly not to assume that rumors that were made against someone always contained a grain of truth. So whether you're on jury duty or whether you're listening to the latest gossip, remember you need to be careful about assuming that when there's smoke, there's always fire. Another application. Don't despair. You see, We know Joseph's story. We know how all of this turns out. We know a bunch of stuff that Joseph did not know when he was in the midst of all of this suffering. We know that God is going to raise him up and is going to use him for great things. When there is suffering in your life, that doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. When you are in the pit, when there are times in which it seems as though your life is going to fall apart, Don't assume that God is not at work. When you look back from the lens of eternity at the things that have happened during your life, the times that you were in the pit, then you will probably be able to say for the first time with perfect honesty, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. 
This story is connected to another story that came before in Joseph's life. Think back. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. The author of Genesis wants you to see that there is literary irony here. Joseph calls his prison a pit. Joseph got himself into the first pit by interpreting dreams. Now, interpreting dreams is going to get him out of the second pit. Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker do something or another to make Pharaoh upset, and he throws them in jail. They were placed under Joseph's care, and he was pretty much running the prison at this point. And Joseph notices one morning that they seem really, really upset about something, and so he asks them, why are your faces downcast today? And they said, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. Obviously, they're upset, but if you know a little bit about Egyptian dreams, it can help you understand with greater clarity why they were so upset. There is an archaeological discovery called the Chester Beatty Papyrus, and it describes the Egyptian beliefs concerning dread omens. There were certain dreams that were much worse than any other sorts of dreams, and these were dread omens, and these are uh, these are dreams that are given by the gods, and when you have one of these dread omens, you know that something horrible is going to happen to you. And the way that you really know that your dream is a dread omen is if you can see yourself in the dream doing something. And if you can see yourself doing something, that means it's a dread omen. Now, the cupbearer said, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. It sounds almost like he's seeing himself something right and likewise the baker said also I was in my dream and so that sounds even more like he saw himself doing something these guys are upset because they thought that their end was near they're looking at this dream and they are sure that they have had a dread omen they know that the dreams that all of the different things in the dream stand for something they looked at dread omens as though they're an allegory but they, didn't, they were not able to interpret what these things stood for. And so the cupbearer, he knew that these three branches of grapes stood for something, but he had no idea what. The baker knew that these uh, three baskets full of food stood for something, but he had no idea what. The Egyptians believed that a dread omen could only be interpreted by certain people who did magic in, in order to unravel the mystery of the dream. Only through the use of magic could you figure out the symbolism of a dread omen. And there was obviously no such person in the pit, and so they had no idea how or when things were going to go even further downhill for them. And so Joseph, in utter defiance of Egyptian belief, says to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. 
Joseph had something that these magicians, these Egyptian magicians and these wise men didn't. He didn't have to do some sort of little magical rituals. He didn't have to dance and shake his bones in order to get an interpretation. Joseph had a personal relationship with the one true God, the God who is over all dreams and who is over the future itself. And so Joseph, he listens to the cupbearer's dream, and the one true God gave him the correct interpretation. After three days, the cupbearer's head is going to be lifted up. It's an idiomatic way of saying that he's going to be restored to his previous position. Everything is going to be okay. You're going to be back doing your old job. Everything is going to be cool between you and Pharaoh. And the baker hears this. And he thinks, oh, the first guy's dream, it seems like it turns out reasonably well. I'm going to tell him my dream. And so he just launches into it. But sadly for him, the news was not so favorable. He's going to have his head lifted up and all the way off. And they're going to take his body and hang it from a tree where the birds are going to eat it. There is no worse fate if you're an Egyptian, because Egyptians believe that the preservation of the body is necessary for eternal life. Well, sure enough, three days later, on Pharaoh's birthday, the cupbearer was restored and the baker was killed. Joseph told each of these men the truth about what was going to happen. And the truth even if it's bad news, is really better than a pleasant lie. Well, a couple of years pass, and it is Pharaoh's birthday again. But this time, he is the one that has the dreams. And when he begins describing these dreams, he said, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. It sounds almost like he sees himself standing on the banks of the Nile, doesn't it? What kind of dream might this be? So out of the Nile come seven fat, healthy, beautiful cows. The cow that won the blue ribbon in the county fair had nothing on any of these cows. These were the perfect cows. They were as beautiful a cow as you have ever seen in your whole life. And if you're Egyptian, you might have thought that, hey, Hoppy, the god of the Nile, he is providing an abundant, wonderful cow because the god of the Nile, obviously, is the one who gives you all of that sort of stuff, all these sorts of provisions. But then there's something rather strange that happens. Right after those seven fat, beautiful, healthy cows are there, something else comes up out of the Nile. Imagine the ugliest skinniest, nastiest cow you have ever seen in your whole life. Imagine, you can see the bones on it, like maybe it's got patches of fur that are missing, it's all horrible and misshapen. And the skinny cows, they go up to these fat cows and they open their mouths. They open it up and up and up and up. And all of a sudden they go, and they eat the big fat cows. You know what's even weirder? They didn't gain any weight. 
when they're done eating those big fat cows, they're just as skinny and just as ugly as they ever were. Pharaoh said, then I awoke. He was probably screaming. I mean, really, this is not a nice dream. You have, this is, these are nightmare cows. These are not normal cows. And so he falls back to sleep. And it's the same sort of a thing again, except now it's nightmare grain that goes and eats the other grain. But it's the same sort of a thing. And he is extremely disturbed. He has a double dream of disaster. <sighs> Something very, very bad is obviously going to happen. What on earth could it be? And so Pharaoh, he goes to his wise man, he goes to his magicians, and they are absolutely, utterly unable to interpret his dreams. And the cupbearer finally comes clean, and he said that he knew someone that could interpret dreams. And of course, it is none other than Joseph, the man of God. And so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's, not, there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it isn't in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You see what he's doing? He is specifically denying that he has any sort of special powers. He is not an interpreter of dreams himself, but he knows the one who is. He knows the one who gives dreams. He knows the one who controls the future itself in comparison to all of these magicians that magically dance and shake their bones he knows the one true god who knows everything and the interpretation that joseph gives is remarkable particularly if you happen to be an egyptian there will be seven years of unimaginable plenty followed by seven years in which there are famine so imagine this imagine that you walk out into your backyard and you see your tomato plant and there's 12 big fat ripe tomatoes on it and you go and you and you say wow that's a lot and you go out there and you pick them and then you come out the next day and there's another 12 and the next day there's another 12 and and you have all these tomatoes, you don't know what to do with them, so you go to your friend down the road, and he's got more tomatoes than he knows what to do with, and so does everybody. In fact, everybody everywhere, it seems as though they're having the most ridiculous crops they've ever had. There is food all over the place. Nobody knows what to do with it all. But then there's going to be seven years that come after that, and all of the gains that they had during those seven years of plenty are going to be removed because then if you go out during any of these seven years to come, there won't be any tomato plants because they haven't even sprouted. Your garden is going to look like the Sahara. And no one's going to have enough to eat. This is what will happen. This is what the one true God has decreed shall take place. Look at this from Pharaoh's perspective. You believe that Hopi, the god of the Nile, provides you with food. That's Hoppy's job, okay? That's what Hoppy does. He gives cows, he gives grain, he provides all of your food type needs. Suddenly, Pharaoh has run into someone who is quite different. The one true God 
has decreed that there shall be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And he is the one who is actually in control of all things. He is going to make sure that this happens. And and Hoppy is not going to be able to save him because these plants are going to wither during the years of famine. The one true God has given the Egyptians a warning, and he is the one who gave Joseph the advice that he gives to Pharaoh. Appoint a man, a good guy, to make sure that there are collections that are taken of all the years, during all the years of excess. And give him a whole bunch of staff because he's going to need it. He's going to need to build a whole bunch of barns and such, uh, granaries to hold all of the excess, and he's going to need to store things up, and he is going to need to make sure that everything is well taken care of, lest your you and all of your people die of starvation. Pharaoh's God is nothing. But the real God has given Pharaoh and his country a chance to live. You see what's going on? When Joseph was lied about and was thrown into the pit, who was in control? Was it Potiphar? Was it Potiphar's wife? No, it was God. God was in control. There is a sense in which we can say that when those prison doors closed behind Joseph, God had closed them. He was that in control of what was going on in Joseph's life. But there is also a sense in which God is using that prison experience to open up another set of doors, namely the doors to Pharaoh's court. It seemed like for a while there that evil had won the day. I mean, Joseph spent all of those years in prison, but when you're able to look back at it, you can see that it's really all part of God's plan. God planned to put this Egyptian god to shame, God had planned, ultimately, to save his people through all of these events. In this story, we see that God has all power and that God is the one who is in control. The one true God, not Hoppy, provides food for his people and he can take away as well as give. The one true God is the one who can predict the future because the future itself is in his hands. Do you realize that you worship a God who is sovereign over the affairs of men? A God who is always near to you, even when you're in the pit.